I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Nandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by M.R. Rangaswamy, the community-building and philanthropic founder of the global nonprofit Indiaspora. Stay tuned. Hey, so a truly genuine thank you for listening to the show, for sharing it with your friends, for downloading, subscribing, and rating the podcast, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhay Dandekar. It means a lot that Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing has a home in your menu of choices, and I thank you for that. It feels really good to have a sense of belonging, right? We all crave it, and it's certainly not without its challenges. Finding your place in a global, evolving, and diversely connected community like the worldwide Indian diaspora is no small feat. It's a delicate set of orchestrated balances, too, how to find your individuality while making contributions to an ecosystem of people, how to maintain a lens on India while also attending to your own community, and how to evolve and define ourselves as a minority through levers of power, giving, and influence. Thankfully, M.R. Rangaswamy has been thinking about and advancing the answer to many of these questions. He's an entrepreneur, investor, community builder, and philanthropist. M.R. immigrated to the U.S. and found his way to Silicon Valley as a software business expert. And since then, he helped co-found the Sand Hill Group, one of the earliest angel investing firms. And then he founded the Corporate Eco Forum as a vehicle for environmental consciousness and committed action. So with this backdrop and a deep commitment to the global Indian community, in 2012, MR founded Indiaspora as a nonprofit organization committed to inspiring the global Indian diaspora to be a force for good. He's been a wonderful champion of building networks and truly nurturing philanthropy, service, and influence. A culture of giving and catalyzing social change is at the core of his effort. And as MR and I chatted, I asked him how he thinks the diaspora has changed in the past 10 years, especially given his unique front row seat perspective. Yeah, I think we've come a long way, Abe. You know, the diaspora is about 32 million in size across the globe. And there are probably five big epicenters, if you will. The US, Canada, UK, Singapore, and the UAE. Now, each one of the migrations to these countries have happened very differently. And some were during pre-colonial, some were colonial, and some more recent. But I think it's taken the diaspora a little bit of time in terms of like reaching its stature, uh, being more visible, uh, gaining more reputation and credibility. I mm-hmm. think that's all come about in the past maybe 10, 20 years. You know, when Indiaspora started in, in 2012, I mean, the most Indians uh, in the U.S. used to thump our chests and say, hey, we're the highest earning. Right. Look at us. Yeah, yeah, it's us. We are highest earning demographic. We're the uh, highest uh, educated people. We are this. We are the 7% of the doctors. We're 10% of the IT workforce. Rah, rah, rah. Right. And that's kind of what we did. But uh, what we didn't have really at that time was the influence Mm. uh, uh, that we have today. And that was because we were just maturing as a community. 
And even though we're 1% of the population, we really didn't have much say in what was going on in the U.S. So, you know, in these, say, 10 years since Indiaspora was founded, what's maybe accelerated that maturation process beyond just the sort of, you know, chest thumping or, or waving of, of the model minority sort of business, particularly here in the U.S., but, but has there been something that's really kind of driven or fueled that maturation? Yeah, I think when we first met in 2012, one of the things we looked around the room, we had 100 leaders across the community, tech CEOs, entrepreneurs, uh, doctors, lawyers, academics, all gathered in upstate New York, which hopefully is a place called Mohonk, which might become famous 20 years from now to say, hey, that's where the <laughs> Indians gathered. It, it is the uh, global Indian Woodstock, if you will. Yeah, right? I, you got it. You got, yeah. and everybody's going to claim they were there. That's <laughs> right, right. So when we looked around the room and we did all the chest thumping, then someone said, you know, we're 1% of the population. Do we have any representation in Congress? Yeah. And it was like, we had nobody, right? So right. one of the first things we said about as an aspiration was, uh, let us become 1% of Congress. And mm-hmm. what that meant was you do the numbers, we got to get five people into Congress, right? Yeah. So in diaspora as a nonprofit, couldn't do that. We couldn't endorse or contribute money to political campaigns. But as a network, we agreed as individuals that we would write checks to anybody with an Indian name. Yes. So along came Kanna, Krishnamurthy, yeah. Jaipal, Kamala, you know, Ami, and all these folks. And we wrote checks to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes, yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars to anybody with an Indian name. Yeah. And lo and behold, we didn't realize this. In three election cycles, we then had the Indias for Gala in D.C. to celebrate and be recognized that Indians were now 1% of Congress. That fueled the initial influence. And when that happened and Nancy Pelosi showed up at our gala and all this stuff, it just set off this storm of people looking at us as political uh, folks, you know, that we can write checks and we can also get people elected. I think that was kind of the initial milestone, if you will. Sure, sure. And I think you and I have even talked about this, but the diaspora is so much more than representing 1% of Congress or the professions that, that you mention, but that it goes to, you know, virtually now pervading every single aspect of society in particularly these geographic regions across the globe that you mentioned and here in the U.S. for sure. With how we're all so well connected and in thinking about that, is there more of an appetite for now global linkages from these people back to India? Or is it more of an inclination towards affirming many, many micro identities here in the States and abroad? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a combination of both. You know, there are two generations of diaspora. People yeah, like yeah. me, you know, who grew up in India, came over here to study or to get a job, whatever. You know, we bring a certain perspective. And there are other people who are born and raised in the U.S. So I think you got to divide up the diaspora. I think today in the U.S., it's roughly two-thirds people like me who came yeah. over and one third who are born and raised people like me. Yeah. Like you. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the difference. So I think you look at the perspective of the older generation, if you will, they want very strong ties to India. Yeah. That's where we came from. And so there's that connect. I think the younger generation has its own aspirations, its own goals, uh, own way of networking and stuff. And I think they'd be a little bit more curious about, Hey, how did people like me grow up in the UK or in Singapore, 
or UAE? Yeah. How do I connect? What are our global aspirations? How are we different than our parents who grew up a different way, right? So I think what in diaspora is hearing from our membership and the community is do both. So yeah. in diaspora, we'll be opening up an, an office in India as we speak yeah. so that we can connect the diaspora with uh, the homeland. But we're also getting tremendous amount of interest, like I said, from the other diasporas around the world. So we'll be doing both over the next five years and providing a network. And this is not merely a network, Abe. It's also a network to be a force for good. Yeah. Like I said earlier, you know, we're the highest earning demographic. That's just one part of the story. I think we need to be known as the highest givers in society, yeah. not the highest earners. And, right. and that's part of Indiaspora's ethos is to help everyone, connect everyone and give back. This ethos of connecting and you're someone who's really, really been a force for great change and a lot of catalyst-like behavior in connecting people, making bridges and collaborating. I'm so curious about one thing. Can a Silicon Valley Indian American feasibly build relationships with the Indian American cab driver in Mississippi or the motel owner in Michigan who may or may not have the same kind of backdrop or background as the people who are in that upstate New York launching pad? You know, I, I thought the same as well in the beginning, but having met thousands and thousands of people in the diaspora in the US, there is some connection with where you came from, which kind of bonds people together. And yeah. I found that over and over again, you know, you meet someone uh, who is a, an Uber driver in New yeah. York and you suddenly start talking about cricket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or Bollywood or something. And, you know, you, you find that common linkage. And yes. so what we have found is that two, you know, India is a membership group. So we have a group of people who contribute yeah. uh, to the organization, but then we support the greater community. And the greater community consists of people from so many professions, like you said, from uh, doctors, lawyers, academics, to IT workers, to you know, hotel workers to uh, and beyond. And yeah. there's a common bond. There's so many things that 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 really join us. I, I'd say Pani Puri is, is and, probably and Pani Puri thing, right? and dosas, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so much things that draw us together and and the curiosity. You know, you meet some other Indian. Uh, I think it's innate in our DNA to be curious. Where's yeah. Abe from? You know, where's his parents right. from? What yeah. what does he do? Right. That's part yeah. of our our culture is to always find out what others are doing, right? It's so amazing that curiosity, especially in developing conversation, is one that, yes, is roiled into the DNA, but hopefully through networks like this or from even just casual conversation that, that people have. One of the things that I've always talked about on this show is that the conversation is a sort of antidote to apathy. And hopefully that's a, a, an easy one to think about and, and hopefully helping to motivate people. When you think about what motivates members of the Indian diaspora to catalyze change, is you know especially important ones like Black Lives Matter or Stop Asian Hate, that on the surface, may not be perceived to be directly linked to the individual global Indian. How do you develop that motivation? How do you sort of fuel that motivation for that kind of catalytic change? I think earlier, I think Abe had mentioned, are, were we the model minority and stuff? Yes, we were. 
But I think over time, we were getting more vocal. But I'll tell you this, when BLM happened and, and there was all these hate crimes against Asians, I think the untold story was there were a lot of such crimes against Indians. We never spoke up. Yeah. We never went a public with that. And in talking to people across, you know, one of my friends, this is right here in California, you'd think very liberal, very uh, receptive to foreigners and stuff. Uh, during uh, three, four years ago, one of my friend's daughters who was born and raised like you in the US was standing in line at a Starbucks. And she was told by a lady behind her to go home. And yeah. she was perplexed. She's like, I was born and raised here. You know, these incidents never come out. Uh, yeah. Whereas if this was against a Jewish person, the Anti-Defamation League would be there at that restaurant, getting an apology from the manager. You know, it would be a very, and that's what we need to learn from other communities like the yeah. Jewish community or or the African-American community or the Asian to stand up for our rights. Yeah. And, and I don't think we've done enough. And that's why when BLM happened, we came out in strong support because there was such, you know, uh, a feeling within our community. This has happened to us. We never spoke up, you know? Yeah. And is it really the relatability to that? Do you ever find that there are people even within our own community who have resistance to, in some ways, kind of standing up for those other communities? Absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's happened. It's a subliminal thing. I think when it happens to us, that's when we realize, yeah. hey, you know, it can happen to all of us uh, who are brown or, or black. You know, it's not something that's particular to one sub-community. Your own journey took you through many of these kinds of lessons, and it took you from software to angel investing to an expertise in corporate environmental consciousness, and then, of course, to Indiaspora, and, and many of those other journeys are continuing. As you reflect on this now, is there a common thread that's linking all of those together, linking those milestones is, is there sort of a North Star or even a architecture to your personal mission and vision that, that has bound all of these things together? Yeah, Abe, I, I mean, that's a, a billion dollar question that yeah. I'm trying to myself answer. And it's not an easy one. Yeah. You know, this is something I'm trying to discover, like, why do I do this? Yeah. And, and uh, what is my purpose in life as well? More recently, I've started uh, attending Bhagavad Gita classes just to understand who I am and why I'm here and so forth. And the best way to date I can describe this is I am just doing good for the community, good for people. I really don't yet understand why I'm doing it. Uh, so far, all I know is my mission is to help people. But that's really the one common thread I find with my CEO group of uh, software and tech CEOs where we bring them together, but we donate all the profits to charity or my corporate eco forum where we bring together 70 of the world's largest companies to mitigate climate change or in diaspora to be a force for good. The common theme is help each other, network, do things that are good. Uh, but I still don't know why I exist. And maybe one of these days I'll come back to you and we can have a separate discussion on purpose and journey in life and so forth. Even when you were first starting, like when your first maybe foray into Silicon Valley after you had immigrated here, was there even in those days that kind of feeling for giving, for being part of a community that there was something bigger than just you? Yeah, I think I think this might have come about when I first came to the country. You know, I was traveling from upstate New York to go to college in Ohio, and my sister-in-law had packed 
a brand new box of uh, pots and pans she had gotten for me and all the Indian masala and spices. And yeah. I took the Greyhound bus to go to college. And when I ended up there, someone had stolen the box, huh. you know, and I was, you know, uh, kind of perplexed and, and disappointed. But my host family in college, when they heard about this, the first thing they did, they went to the Kmart locally, bought me pots and pans. Of course, they couldn't get the spices. But the warmth of the community when you were in need, yeah. I think, stood out to me even today, how welcoming America was, mm -hmm. how good the people are here. You know, you might hear of stories of the other side, but I have felt nothing in the sense of when you're in need, people here just go out to help you. That triggered me later to do something, uh, give something back. I think that's the only thing I can think of now is why am I doing it? Because someone helped me in the yeah. past. And I wonder if it's sort of this kind of reflecting the gratitude that you have and sharing that in, in so many ways. You've been so incredibly successful at building networks and galvanizing philanthropy through yourself and, and through others. This must, as you say, bring some great joy and some great gratification. What has it actually brought for you to learn about yourself, but particularly from the giving side you mentioned that like you know you you felt so great receiving that show of of love from your host family when you give is there a sense is there an equally a sense of, of gratitude and how have you been able to sort of like let that grow and develop and and you know continue to learn from that you know what i found out Abe, is uh, actually giving uh, you have more gratification than receiving yeah. uh, when i started my first event for CEOs, it was a, a network and everybody, you know, had to pay $6,000 to show up. And I didn't have any differentiation for my network or conference. And uh, that's when I started thinking, how can I be different? That's when I changed the model of my event to be one where all the profits go to nonprofits. Yeah. You know, that one single change was hard to do because I was looking at this pile of money I would make if I did this event. And when I flipped the model, I felt so much better. And all the attendees felt so much better to write checks. That moment was the time when I think I became a philanthropist. It was not something that I planned on and not something I waited for that moment. It just happened as a matter of business. And yeah. when that flipped my switch, I felt so much better. At the end of that first year, I remember we collected something like $200,000 of profit and we had to give it away. And it was such a good feeling to yeah. choose different nonprofits and uh, hand them checks, you know, for them to go do work. Uh, it was such so much better than to make a million dollars. I can tell you that much. Was was that a, a surprise to the other people who were there as well? I mean, that they felt like, wow, I didn't realize that this this could happen this way. Uh, absolutely. Because, you know, when someone asks you to write a check for a for profit event, you kind of then start looking at what am I getting? What are my benefits? It yeah. becomes transactional. When you go and say, hey, you know what? We're all going to write checks and we're all going to collectively give the money away. Very different conversation. And we've had CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, the big tech companies, all write us checks for the privilege of keynoting our event, which is never heard of in the industry. They keep this in their mind. When they meet me later on, they say, you're the only event that I paid to attend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How infectious does that become then? Is the hope and expectation that this spawns off many other similar kinds of groups and events and, and that they're kind of gelled and coagulated together by the spirit of, of giving or seva? 
Yeah, and that's evolved, uh, Abe, because with the, with that same CEO network, initially we just gave checks. Yeah. Then we started bringing these nonprofits to attend our retreat for two and a half days to learn from these successful business leaders how they can scale, how they can raise more money, how they can get a mentor, an advisor, a board member, and yeah. even more money from the companies that these folks represent. So now this network has evolved to one not of just giving a check, but helping these nonprofits yes. scale, grow, and become more successful. So again, it's a, an evolution that's happened that's helpful to all the attendees because they didn't merely write a check. They now joined the board of a nonprofit or they you know, became an advisor or a mentor to this young CEO of a nonprofit. So yes. much more gratifying than writing a check. With how integrated we've all become into so many aspects of society like we were talking about, how do you then maybe galvanize this for the folks who are not CEOs, who are, you know, middle class Americans or, or folks who may be even struggling and can giving and can networking, can it still pervade into those lives in, in order to develop that same kind of spirit and that same kind of joy? Have you found success in, in that element as well? Yeah, let me give an example of a Cello Give, Let's yeah. Give campaign that in diaspora initiated a few years ago, where we said, you know, there are these uh, very wealthy Indians who can give directly to nonprofits. They have their own foundations. But what about the other 3.9 million of us who are Indian Americans who don't have that ability, but are willing to give 5, 10, 20, 50, $100 to yeah. nonprofits? So Chalo Give is an online campaign that we in initiated a few years ago, been very successful where we got people in the greater community to go to the Cello Give website, find an organization or a cause, just press a button. You know, it's like Amazon's one-click uh, buying. Yeah. You, you do kind of literally a one-click donation yeah. to a charity of your choice. And during COVID, uh, I mean, the community just rose up like we've never seen before. Between yeah. the two waves of COVID, Abe, we uh, raised over $5 million through Cello Give. Wow. I mean, this is a big amount of money, but then through our partners and collaborations with other organizations raised another 10 million. Overall, in two years, we've raised $15 million for COVID relief, both in the US and in India. And this all was done online. Do you find that we do have to keep our eye on priorities that are happening both here and, and in India at the same time? Because committing to Seva, committing to leadership, committing to engagement and inspiration and even political action requires a, a menu that faces the community whose, whose attention is, as we talked about, straddling both the Indian and American currents. So is there almost an art to how to steer appropriately and how to prioritize for folks who are now already in the spirit of, of giving and inspiring, but perhaps are torn by, wow, do I pay attention to the political climate here, or do I give to my brethren back in India? So I think this is something we deal with. And so it's not either or, it's an and. Yeah. The way we look at it is Chalo Give has two components to it. One is what we call give where you live. Yeah. So you and I live in the Bay Area. We need to give back to our communities where we grew up, we got jobs, we made our money, and we live. We need to give there. We also need to look at people where, you know, the place we came from, our parents came from and so forth. And so that's giving to India where the dollar can go much longer. So yeah. our campaigns are really created and, and 
and focused on give where you live or you give to India. And we encourage everyone to say do both. But if you can only give to one place, you pick. You know, yeah. there's no one good or bad way. But one of the things we want to do for the next generation of people is to really also expose them to where their heritage was and where their parents and ancestors came from, just so that there's a feeling of connection and and so forth. So that's why we do both. But yeah. there's no good or right or wrong answer to this one. What's the main, perhaps, especially for folks in, in my generation who are born and brought up here, who comprise a big portion of the diaspora and, and who struggle sometimes with not just the, the identity part, but with the notion of what do I embrace? And, you know, it also evolves over time, right? I mean, you make yeah. these discoveries about linkages back to your own culture, and, and at times you might be uninterested in that as well. How have you seen this in, evolve either personally or, or in the history of, of Indiaspora, thinking a little bit about that, particularly because this is not a unique situation to the U.S. It certainly plays out in the U.K. It certainly plays out in, in other places abroad. We are very cognizant of the next generation. And so one of the things we've been looking at, the Jewish community has been very helpful to us in terms of telling us what to do and best practices and so forth. One of the things they did, and we've tried now to emulate that, is they have a program called Birthright Israel, mm. where any uh, child of Jewish heritage, when they turn 18, they can apply for a program where they spend a month in Israel on a kibbutz, uh, learning about history of Israel, traveling the country, talking to people. They immerse themselves a month at yeah. no charge, at no yeah. cost to them. So a couple of years ago, we tried a similar experiment with Indiaspora called Heritage India, where yeah. we selected from the U.S. a dozen or so kids of Indian origin, and we took them to India for three weeks, to New Delhi for a week to learn about the history and culture. They then went to Gandhi's ashram in Ahmedabad for a week to do a service, and they went to South India to experience uh, what was going on there. Yeah. Very, very successful. We're now trying to make this more of a, a consistent program, if you will. Yeah. Uh, that was one element. The second thing is through our Indian office, which we're just opening, we want to be a conduit for, uh, let's say, your kids and mine when they are growing up and they say, you know what, we want to do a summer internship in India. We don't know yeah. anything about it. We want to be able to help them find jobs in India for summer internships. But some people are now coming to us and saying, you know what, I've graduated. I don't want to join Goldman Sachs. I really want to do something more different and meaningful. And they want to go to India. We may even be able to place them for full-time jobs in India. Yeah. And so what we want to do for the next gen is really open up this thing where India becomes just uh, like going to California or New York. It's yes. an extension of that. And that way they get uh, opened up to a different culture. That's one way I think we can, with the next generation, really connect them to the homeland. You know, we're almost at the, the spring of 2022. And as you now both reflect on the past, but also look forward, what's the number one challenge right now that you're working on? And, and perhaps what are you most optimistic about? Yeah, I think the number one challenge is really the geopolitics that are happening now where it's almost like countries have to choose sides on everything. Yeah. Uh, so it's almost like you're with us or you're against us kind of mode that the world has turned into. Both politics in the U.S. has become that way. You're either on the Republican side or the Democratic side. 
And in now in geopolitical situations, same thing, you're on one side or the other side. There's no more neutrality, no more nuanced relationships. It's almost picking sides. I think that's a huge challenge for a country like India to navigate through as India is going through now. It's almost, you know, the world situation today. That's what India is stuck with is like, you're with us or you're on the other side. And it's like. And and do you find that the movement or the membership of the Indian diaspora sort of is susceptible to this kind of tribalism too? Uh, Absolutely. I think, you know, with the politics going that way, I think there's always the two extremes get more vocal. So I think we're definitely susceptible to that. I think uh, so far it's been kept under wraps, but I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out more in the open. That's, I think, my the biggest concern today with media, with uh, misinformation and disinformation and, uh, and WhatsApp messages going around without ever having any fact checks. I mean, that is really causing huge problems even within the diaspora and within India itself. And so I think that, I think, is the biggest uh, challenge we face. But on the other hand, I'm hopeful that humanity, uh, you know, we all have good qualities that, you know, kind of supersede any of these negativity and, and, and bad things that are happening around us to say, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We're here to help each other. We're here to evolve into even better human beings. So I hope, you know, good sense will prevail as we move forward as opposed to, you know, this parochial politics or fighting and polarization. Uh, I'm very hopeful because I think we can always get pessimistic thinking of all the negative things going on. But in the past hundred years, I think the world has actually been a good place, a better place than it was. But, you know, we don't read stories that say things are better. You know, we always (laughs) tend to click on a story that says something bad happened, you know. And so we need to get out of that mentality. Well, so many good things are happening because of you. Your sense of humanity and your kindness is inspiring. MR, thank you so, so much for joining us for this chat. And I hope you'll come back and join us again. Thank you for having me, Abhi. Thanks so much, MR. And please go to indiaspora.org to check out much more. And a hearty congratulations to all the medical students who matched into residency last week. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dharnika. Ruckus Avenue Radio.